So John Calvin, the reformer, he said that the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God with the church as its orchestra. So when thinking about the Lord's Prayer, we're struck with this beautiful truth that what we are in fact asking for when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is that the reality of God's space would become the reality of our space. That the reality of God's space would become the reality of our space. And what Calvin is getting at is the very thing we've been looking at over the past month. That the means by which God accomplishes this is through the spirit indwelt body of Christ. So what we need to wrestle with this morning, if we are to perform in the theater of God displaying before a watching world divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power is what the nature of God's space is versus our space and how in Christ the church becomes the very place where heaven and earth come together. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he says it like this. He says, the union of heaven and earth is what the Bible is all about. That's a big statement. The union of heaven and earth is what the Bible is all about. From the garden to the uniting of all things in heaven and on earth, God's story is the story of his heavenly rule and reign becoming the reality for all of creation. A reality that promises the defeat of evil and an eternity of Sabbath rest with our Lord in the new heavens and the new earth a big order, right? So this morning, that's what we're going to be focusing on. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We talked about the kingdom of God two weeks ago. We talked about the will of God last week. And this week, we're going to get into this concept of what those things look like as heaven manifests itself in our space, as God's space comes together with our space. So you were given a bulletin when you came in. We're going to follow a simple outline that's on the right side of your bulletin. So the first point, God's space. And, and before getting there, I want to lay some foundation. What do we mean when we talk about heaven or God's space? What do we mean? What, is, what do those words mean? Well, in, in, the, in the Bible, there's, there's two words in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament that describe God's space. In Hebrew, it's the word shemayim. And you guys can all say that, right? We do a little Hebrew lesson, shemayim. Yeah, it's a fun word. And then in Greek, it's huranas, huranas. You could say that too, huranas. It's a fun one, right? So their use in the Old Testament, most of the use of this word shemayim refers to either sky or space. It literally means like the world up there, where birds fly, where stars are. But there are a number of instances where the term is used to describe or refer to God's space, his heavenly dwelling. 1 Kings 8.30 is an example of this, where it says, And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. 
In the New Testament, it kind of flips a little bit, where most of the usage refers to God's space, his heavenly dwelling. We see this a lot in the Gospel of Matthew, as the kingdom of heaven is referred to throughout his gospel. Matthew's use is really important. Because when referring to God's space or heaven, we are in fact referring to his kingdom because there is no space that can actually contain God. So heaven is the place where God's rule and reign are fully realized, which means there are places on earth that are as it is in heaven. And we're going to get to that. We're going to start to unpack a little bit of that. So in other words, to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer to see the rule and reign of God manifest itself here on earth. It's a prayer to see the rule and reign of God manifest itself here on earth. And sometimes that prayer has a pretty easy answer to it. Sometimes it means just us repenting of sin and turning back to God, embracing a life of holiness and righteousness because the will of God and the kingdom of God is something marked by righteous living and holiness. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. And so sometimes that big prayer has a really easy answer to it. Namely, let's repent and, and move on in following our Lord. And so that's what we're dealing with when we're talking about God's space. We're dealing with his kingdom, his rule and reign. And heaven is the place where his rule and reign is fully realized. He's on the throne. And now, don't, don't get me wrong. He's on the throne of all of creation. But his rule and reign has not become fully realized on earth. And we know that. We know that because we live here and we experience the effects of sin and death in this world. We've either experienced it because we participated in it. Or we've experienced it because those have participated in it against us. We've either been sinned against or we've sinned. So God's rule and reign has not been fully manifested yet on earth. So let's talk a little bit about on earth. Because earth, this second point in our outline, was the goal from the very beginning of creation that the rule and reign of God would manifest itself here on earth. In, utter, in other words, that God would dwell among his people. That God would dwell among his people. We see this all over the Old Testament. And, and, and what we see in the Old Testament actually is, is what's referred to by theologians as the temple presence of God manifesting itself on earth. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. I know I talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 all the time. It's that important because there are foundational documents. And what do we see in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3? We see the presence of God in the garden. We see the temple presence of God in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. Adam was placed in the garden to work and keep it. And these two words, when used together, convey priestly duties. Which means that what God was setting up in the Garden of Eden was a temple where priests would do their work. We see in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, it says, They, referring to the priests, shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting or the tabernacle as they minister. So they keep guard and they work. They minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister or work at the tabernacle. 
So in other words, what we're dealing with in the Garden of Eden is God's space. It is a temple. And the priests of that particular temple were Adam and Eve. And they were meant to guard and work that particular temple. And we know how the story goes, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. Another thing that I think is really important for us to wrap our minds around is that we talk about in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that God walked back and forth in the garden. That God walked back and forth in the garden, which is the same Hebrew form used to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. That he walked back and forth in his space, in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. Why am I bringing all this up? Because what I want us to understand is that from the very beginning, God's space and our space were meant to be brought together. It was always the plan. That was always the goal. And so when, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were, they were removed from the garden, there had to be another plan set up in place. We see this roll out in Exodus chapter 25. Remember, the, the Israelites were taken captive by Egypt, and, and Moses frees the Israelite slaves, and he takes them out, what is known as the Exodus. And it says this in chapter 25, that the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, because they take for me a contribution, um, excuse me, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incenses, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make. And then as we flip to the end of the book of Exodus in chapter 40, it says this in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God, again, dwells in the midst of his people. The temple presence of God, the heavenly presence of God makes its way onto earth again, again, right? This is the hope. This is the point. We see this same sort of event take place in Second Chronicles at the building of Solomon's temple, where again in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and what does it say? And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Again, the heavenly presence of God, the temple presence of God comes down to earth, comes down to our space. God's space invades our space. What's the point? The rule and reign and heavenly presence of God has always made its way on to earth. In other words, there was always a place where the kingdom and will of God were on earth as it is in heaven. It's always been the goal of creation. We sing about this at Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God with us. 
This is the hope of the Christian life, that we would experience the very presence of God. And we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But I want us to wrap our minds around the story of the Bible right now, that the hope and goal has always been for God to dwell with his people, for God to dwell with his people. We see this in a number of other places. I'm not going to necessarily read through all of these examples, but we see this in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob's ladder. We see in Jacob's ladder what happens is that there are there that Jacob falls asleep and he has this dream and he and he sees a ladder coming out of heaven and he sees the angels descending and ascending between heaven and earth. We also see this at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where, 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 where all of a sudden Moses sees the, the burning bush, the presence of Almighty God. And, and what does God say to him? He says, take your shoes off because this is holy ground. This is holy ground. And then the one spot I do want to read is in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Israel at Mount Sinai. It says, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell all the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people of the land. Um, I lost my spot here. Of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, here's where it gets nuts. I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and you also believe, and may believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to, the, to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So what's, what's the point here? What's the point? The point is that God's space is holy. God's space is holy. We see this in Genesis 28. We see this in Exodus 3, and we see this outlined in Exodus 19. You can't just walk up to God flippantly because his space is holy. We saw this in the garden where his space, where they had perfect fellowship with Almighty God, and they sinned against God and were removed from the garden. Why? Because they broke covenant with God. They sinned against God. 
No longer were they holy. No longer could they be in the presence of God. But yet his plan was to make himself known among the people and to dwell in their midst. It's always been the goal. Flip with me to Hebrews chapter 9, and I have this up on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. It says this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section... Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. A couple of things that I notice in this passage. There were regulations for worship, and there was an earthly place of holiness, and there needed to be preparation. There's two sections. There's a holy place, and then there's a most holy place. And the priests were required to perform ritual duties, cleansings, because the place of God's heavenly presence must remain holy. What's the point? Wherever heaven and earth come together, holiness prepares the way, namely because God is holy. Which means that when we pray... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are begging for God, for begging God for holiness, his holiness to win the day. We are begging for God's holiness to win the day. That's what we're praying. That's what we mean when we say on earth as it is in heaven. We want the rule and reign of the kingdom of God to manifest itself here and that begins with us it begins with us holiness is what god is calling for here and you'll notice as we've been going through the lord's prayer that holiness seems to be something that marks almost every petition whether explicit or implicit whether explicit or implicit which brings us to our last section of the outline, when worlds collide. And we're going to spend a little bit more time here this morning. If God's kingdom is going to come and his will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then what was temporary in the Old Testament does need to be made permanent. What was temporary in the Old does need to be made permanent. So Joni Mitchell, if you've heard of her, she was a, she's a folk singer. After hearing about the concert she missed in the summer of 1969, she wrote a song called Woodstock. 
The chorus repeats over and over again. We are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. I always thought that was such an interesting line, and I'm sure many of you would agree. There's an interesting thing going on there. The garden, as we talked about already, was the place where heaven and earth came together in beautiful Sabbath peace. Holiness was the anthem of the garden because the temple presence of God resided there. And remember, he walked with and talked with his image bearers right there. And we all know how the story goes, especially if you've sat under my preaching for more than 25 minutes. And Joni Mitchell knew the story as well. Because the final chorus of the song goes like this. We are stardust, billion-year-old carbon. We are golden, caught in the devil's bargain. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. The place of God's holy temple presence was desecrated by this covenant-breaking act of both Adam and Eve. An abomination of desolation, if you will, took place in Genesis chapter 3. And they're cast out of his presence beyond the boundaries of the garden, and the rest of the Bible is about getting back to the garden, into the presence of Almighty God. Which brings us to the arrival of the very temple presence of God found in John chapter 1. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here is where it gets important. Well, it's all important, but here's where it gets to the point that we're making this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So a couple of observations. This word that is spoken of in John chapter 1 was instrumental in creation. All things were made through him. This word was both life and light, And for our purposes this morning, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. As some of you might know, this term dwelt can also be translated as tabernacled or tented. In other other words, it's the verb form of the noun tent or tabernacle. The same term used to describe the tabernacle throughout the Greek Old Testament. Throughout the Greek Old Testament. Also in John chapter 2.19, Jesus says, referring to his own body, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He created quite a stir in that situation. Because everyone's like, what are you talking about? This temple took forever to build. How are we going to build it in three days? And he's sitting there, he's like, man, they don't know what I'm talking about. They don't know what I'm talking about. With eyes to see, 
We look back over redemptive history. We read through our Bibles. We know what Jesus is talking about. He's referring to his own body as we see laid out for us right in the text in John chapter 2. Because what is happening is that the New Testament writers make it clear that Jesus is the promised new temple because in Christ, God's kingdom came and his will was done on earth as it is in heaven in the person and work of King Jesus. He is the temple presence of God making his way through the earth. That's what we read about in the Gospels, that the temple presence of God finally came down to earth. Beautiful. It's unbelievable. It should move us to worship that, that all these years that God has been making a way for his presence to be known on earth finally just enters into creation. The person and work of Jesus, the very temple presence of God is on earth, is on earth. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We talked about this a number of months back last Christmas as we looked at this passage in more depth as we studied the incarnation of King Jesus. The temple presence of God is on earth. This is good news. This is good news. And this is what was happening throughout the Old Testament, preparing the way, leading all to this that we can finally, at the fullness of time, experience the presence of Almighty God. But it actually gets better. Back again in Hebrews chapter 9, now verses 11 through 14, it says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the, and for the purification of the flesh, how much more how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you hear what I just read? That Christ appeared as high priest. He entered into the heavenly temple with a once and for all scenario because the blood of Christ is better it has an ability to purify beyond what bulls and goats are able to do. And a little bit further on in verses 24 through 28, it says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of his own, for then he would have to had suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Jesus, the true temple and the great high priest, has swung wide open the doors of the new creation temple through his sacrifice, giving us access to heaven 
right now, right here on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. When we submit ourselves to King Jesus, when we bend our knee to him, when we repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we have access to God. We have access to the heavenly places. It says in Ephesians, what does it say? That we are seated where? In the heavenly places with him. Oh, this is good news, Redeemer. This is good news. The blood of Christ has cleansed us so we can enter into the most holy place. But it gets even better. It gets better. Check this out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And Cheryl, I did not know you were going to reference that this morning. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are begging God for the reality of heaven, the rule and reign of King Jesus to be made manifest here on earth. And we as the earthly expression of the new creation temple with Christ as our cornerstone, are the means by which God is making his presence known throughout all of creation. Acts chapter 2, another important piece to the puzzle. We talked about this a number of months ago, but Acts chapter 2 is that story of Pentecost. And it reads like this, chapter 1 and following. I don't think I have this on the board. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is what theologians call a theophany, where God actually appears on earth. And how does he appear? As fire, and there's a mighty rushing wind. And all of this language should remind us of what was going on first at Sinai, what was going on when the tabernacle was built and it was filled with the temple presence of God, what was going on in Chronicles when the temple was filled with the presence of God. There were these these earth-shattering events that were taking place as that was happening. And what we see going on at the death of Christ and his resurrection is that the old temple is passing away, And the new creation temple is here to stay for all eternity in the person and work of Jesus and through the people of God, the church. We are the temple in Christ. So on earth as it is in heaven means this right here. What we're doing as we gather on Sunday mornings to worship our king, as we care for one another, as we come alongside one another, praying for one another, meeting physical needs for one another, we are the presence of God here on earth. And this is why we talk about on Sunday mornings that we have an opportunity to show the world what God is like. 
This is good news. This is good news. This is what we're dealing with when we talk about this prayer that God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember the words of John Calvin. The whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God with the church as its orchestra. We are the orchestra of God, playing the notes of the kingdom on instruments of heaven, instruments of love, mercy, and justice, with notes of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The church is the place where the world will experience God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in Christ we have become the temple of the living God, filled with his Holy Spirit. This should inspire awe in us. This should move us to worship. Ah, but it should also do something else, right? It should challenge us. It should convict us, right? Because, Because Jesus has a way of cleansing temples, Jesus has a way of of removing the filth from his temple. He did that in the New Testament, if you remember. That's when he started getting really mad. Notice who Jesus gets the most upset with in the Gospels. It's the religious leaders. It's those who were there to represent God on earth. It's those who were called to manifest the kingdom and will of God on earth as it is in heaven. They didn't do that. And so what Jesus does as he enters into the temple is he cleanses the temple, knowing full well that that temple is passing away, but making sure that people understand this is not what I meant when I said on earth as it is in heaven. This is not what I meant when I said that God would dwell in your midst. And so we need to take a step back. We need to examine ourselves individually and corporately. Where do we need that cleansing? Where do we need to repent of sin? Even right now, there is a reckoning going on in the church. I don't know if you've noticed. There's a lot going on if you flip through Christian Twitter and and Christian Facebook, whatever the case may be. There's a a whole church two movement happening in the Christian church right now where people who sat at high levels of of Christian authority are, are being called out for major sin. Major sin, because because sin will find us out. God's not to be mocked. And so he's cleansing his temple. He is always cleansing his temple. And he's calling us to go and do likewise, to look at ourselves, to look at our church. Where do we need to repent of sin? So we need to wrestle with that. I've said this now for the last two weeks. If the kingdom of God moves toward the effects of sin with grace, kindness, and truth, then that's what needs to mark us as a people. That's what holiness looks like. I can't encourage us enough to spend time in the Sermon on the Mount, to read through the Gospels, to look at how Jesus lived. We must examine ourselves. We are to be holy as he is holy. It's not complicated, but it's also not easy. God is calling us to something. And I think what's helpful is that when we understand what exactly he is calling us to, 
I think there's something really helpful about understanding this idea that we are the temple of Almighty God indwelt by the presence of God. I think that gives us a little bit of pause to recognize that I've said this in the past, like this isn't a game. This is a big deal. We need to wrestle with that. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us where we need conviction and not to shove that down, not to brush it aside, but to recognize, okay, if there's sin that I need to deal with, I need to deal with it now. Because the holy presence of God resides in this place. It resides in us. And so as we come to the table this morning, a a visible representation of how heaven and earth come together, where our souls are nourished by the grace of our Lord. My prayer is that we would come in awe of what God has called us to. To be a Christian is to be a stone in the new creation temple of Almighty God. Think about that. Think about that. I've never been to Israel. Those who have been to Israel, they talk about the the temple wall that's still up. There's one of the walls that still is there. And, and, And people are in awe of that. Why are they in awe of that? Well, I think, one, because it's old. And whenever we see something old, we're in awe of that. We're like, wow, man, that's been around for a long time. It puts our life into perspective a little bit. I think they're also in awe because there was a time where that place was where God met with his people. And so that inspires awe in people. But what needs to inspire awe in us all the more is that now we are the place where God meets with his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. That needs to inspire awe in us. That needs to to overwhelm us. That is incredible news. And so when we talk about the good news, the gospel here at Redeemer Fellowship, we talk about a very big gospel. 100% Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day so that we can have life. That is the gospel, absolutely. Oh, but as we zoom out, it's the story of God making his presence known through the person and work of Jesus, through the work of the church. It's a big gospel. It's a big gospel. It's a kingdom-shaped gospel. It's a cross-shaped gospel. It's a gospel that calls us to lives of humility, of peace, of justice, of mercy. It's a gospel that calls us away from the patterns of this world, both individually and corporately. It's a big gospel. To be a Christian is to be a stone in the new creation temple of God. It's to experience the very presence of Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that we would be in awe of that, that it would drive us to repentance and worship, that it would drive us toward mission, that we would be a people who show the world what God is like. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for this tall order. Because, Father, what you've called us to, you also provide for, Lord. You give us the power to do your will through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. So grateful for that, Father. 
And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, as we're nourished by your grace, Lord God, as our souls are cared for, Father, I pray that we would examine ourselves, Lord God. Help us to repent. Help us to submit ourselves to you in every single corner of our lives, individually and as a church, Lord God. I beg that of you, Lord. I pray that you, you start with me, Lord. Help me to continue fighting sin and temptation in my own life, Lord God. Help me to care for, for this church well, Lord, for the elders, Lord, that we would all care for this body that you've entrusted to us well, for our people, Lord God that you would continue to use them, Lord. I'm so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful for your gospel, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.